following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Welcome back, Larger for Life listeners. We are again here uh, journeying through the Westminster Larger Catechism. We hope you enjoyed our last episode that was released on New Year's Day with Uh, an interview with our dear uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church buddies uh, talking about their new devotional on the Shorter Catechism, walking through that Shorter Catechism in 52 weeks. Uh, Actually, I I just cracked that book, guys, um, for this new year, and uh, I'm fascinated by the way that they've established it in weeks in a year, 52 weeks in a year. kind of like the Heidelberg. You might remember them mentioning that. And so uh, it's been a helpful tool. Um, I know that uh, some sister PCA churches around me are going to actually start using that for their prayer meeting during this year as well. But uh, anyway, uh, as we move back into the larger catechism, I have uh, many of my co-hosts here. Uh, We have Sean, Derek, and Spin. I'm going to let them say good morning here in just a few moments. But But we said last week that we have started excluding Nick from our recording sessions by just simply telling him nothing about our recording uh, dates and times and and pretty much more of the same this this episode as well. We Nick has no clue uh, that we're recording right now. Um, He is. Uh, probably eating brisket somewhere in Texas very happily. And we're going to let him eat and enjoy his meal. Um, because, you know, quite frankly, uh, guys, I don't know if y'all agree with this, but he doesn't add anything valuable to our conversations anyway. So, uh, you know, we're minus Nick uh, for this episode. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, Nick is traveling uh, back to the great state of Texas uh, after the holidays. And so he's not with us. Uh, We just wanted to take a quick jab at him because we know that he'll listen to this episode to see what we said about him uh, as well. So um, we miss you, Nick. Most of us love you. I mean, Derek doesn't, but most of us do. Um, And so Derek doesn't love anybody in all fairness. (laughs) Other than Perkins. Uh, He loves Perkins, but that's it. Um, I mean, his wife's somewhere on that totem pole, but, but, you know. Closer and to the bottom. To clarify, that's William Perkins, not Harrison Perkins. Though I uh, really do appreciate my friend Harrison Perkins. Um, I do not love him. Well, as long as you love Jesus, William Perkins, and you somewhat tolerate tolerate your wife, uh, Derek, I think that you're in the clear, buddy. Um, just kidding. We're we're picking we're picking very hard this morning. Um, let me. Let me just turn it over uh, to uh, to Sean to say hello to our listeners. Halen, of course, from uh, Tennessee. Sean, you want to say welcome to our listeners? Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to be here with y'all and back after our little holiday break. And I, I would wager that since Nick is in the midst of traveling back from visiting family in Mississippi, heading back to Texas right now, he's probably in a minivan full of screaming kids, and he'd much rather be with us right now, I, I would venture to guess. 
Um, he probably even more would care to be at Black's Barbecue, which is about a block down the street from his church office uh, there in New Braunfels, just like Derek would rather be at Perkins Restaurants than with us right now. But we can't all get what we want. That's true. You know, uh, Sean did try to convince Nick just to pull over at a rest area to record this episode, but he he just said it was too much trouble with I all did. of his I, I, kiddos. I said, just you have a mobile phone. You have Wi-Fi, or you have data. You have Wi-Fi. Just pull over the side of the road, jump in on Zoom, and you can join us. But no, he refused. He's not committed he, to the cause. If he would have stopped at a Whataburger, uh, we would have done this live uh, and in video just to watch the glories of Nick eating a cheeseburger. Absolutely. But nonetheless, we move along here to uh, our buddy, uh, Derek Bright in Aliceville, Alabama. Derek, you want to say hello? Hello. A man of many words. We appreciate Derek and all of his uh, great additions to the podcast. Um, Spin, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, at Westminster PCA. You want to say hello, Spin? Hello. We're going for verbosity here this morning. I'm telling you, copycat. <laughs> you're just trying to be a Tommy Topper, Spin. Um I want to be like Derek when I grow up. You don't? Agreed. Actually, I do. Uh, he has the greatest beard of the group. Um, and, uh, you know, he lives in the glory lands of small town Alabama, which is is just is, is the greatest, the greatest atmosphere I can think. Um, we listeners are going to be doing multiple parts uh, on the next couple of questions that we have in the larger catechism. As you might remember from our last episode on question 32, where it was uh, Derek Spin and myself, uh, we introduced to you the covenant of grace, moving away from the covenant of creation or the covenant of works. And so as we begin to talk about the, the covenant of grace, how it was administered, uh, typology, discontinuity, continuity with the Old Testament in reference to the new. Um, we're going to start really just talking through questions 33, 34, and 35. We know that that's a, a huge chunk of the, the catechism questions, but we, we think that just to keep some some comprehension to what the Westminster Assembly is trying to establish in these in these three questions that we need to just tackle them all together, um, and we will move slowly through these three questions in hopefully two episodes, but maybe maybe even more. Um, but let me read question thirty three to you, and then I'm going to kick it over to uh, Derek to to get us started uh, talking about this. But question thirty three of the larger catechism asked, was the covenant of grace always administered after one and the same manner? And the answer is the covenant of grace was not always administered after the same manner, but the administrations of it under the old Testament were different from those under the new Derek, where do you want to, to start our conversation with this question on this episode? Well, I think a good place to begin is just to talk about the fact that when we say 
that we believe in the covenant of grace, which if our listeners will remember the last episode, um, we talked about the, um, the covenant of grace and how it was manifested. Well, we believe that beginning with Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel, all the way uh, for the rest of really history, um, the uh, God is working in the covenant of grace, but it just looks differently. And I think sometimes people get confused over because something looks different in the Old Testament or in uh, the Old Covenant times that uh, it's of a different substance. But we would not say that. That's where we would differ with uh, some uh, other traditions. Um, We believe that all of the things like prophecies and sacrifices, circumcision, Passover, all those are just tops that point to Christ, um, but that uh, it's still the same substance. Um, So, for example, to, I think, help illustrate this more, I always go to 1 Corinthians 10. That's one of my favorite passages about this. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, first of all, addresses them and, and says, our fathers, uh, of course, there's Gentiles <laughs> in the Corinth church, um, and he's saying, our fathers died in the wilderness. So first thing he does is shows um, solidarity and shows that there's this one covenant people of God that Gentiles are now grafted in so much so that he could say our fathers, your father. uh, Yes, you're a Gentile, but your father died in the wilderness because of disobedience. But he, he goes on to say they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink and, uh, from the same rock. And that rock was Christ. And so in the Old Testament, though there were pointers, though the fulfillments of the um, tops and shadows have not has not come yet. uh, It was still the same substance. They were still feeding, if you will, upon Christ spiritually in those acts, trusting in Christ spiritually, um, just as we are. So I would begin there. I would begin with let us not confuse different looks as different substance yeah yeah i i I think that's really helpful to go ahead and establish derek as we begin this conversation because you know after you know adam and eve are created they have the creation mandates uh they fall into sin by eating the forbidden fruit uh from the the tree of knowledge of good and evil immediately right because they have now uh ushered sin into the world as our federal head uh we we need a new covenant to be struck between creation and its creator um and and you you help us to understand Derek, with your comments that we have this covenant of grace that starts at genesis 3 carries on through the rest of redemptive history all the way to the glories of heaven uh where uh, God and his people are in sweet communion again together in an unhindered way. But that throughout the the Old Testament, especially as we move into the New, we have these different uh, we have these different methods, uh, maybe we might say, or means in which God is uh, 
not recutting the covenant, but showing us uh, the covenant of grace in a more fuller sense. And so, you know, we we cannot begin to think that somehow God is republicating uh, his covenant of works all over again at places like the Noahic covenant or the Mosaic covenant uh, when he begins to hand down laws to his people again, but he is actually showing us a fuller understanding of the covenant of grace that we look outside of ourselves for the inheritance of eternal life, namely, you know, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, and also showing us the duties that are required of, that's catechism language, the duties that are required of this new covenant life in which he has called his people uh, to live in, right? Um, and so we we have this error within the church um, that God is not revealing throughout the Old Testament his gracious attributes, but as he's actually uh, trying to reestablish, if you will, this covenant of works in a fuller sense in, in which God uh, God expounds, maybe we sh- we could say, expounds the 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 law within the creation narrative, the the works that are required for righteousness throughout the Old Testament, like you know the Mosaic Law, um, and and that's just a a bad way of looking at how God has revealed Himself now graciously and in His goodness and mercy towards His people after the introduction of sin, right? Yeah, that's really good, Matt. And there's a couple of older voices that I want to bring into our conversation that echo what you were just saying. So we have our good friend J.G. Voss and his commentary on the larger catechism, because I think at the heart of this question, and I do think the Westminster Divines are very pastoral. They're anticipating questions or objections that people in the pews would have to the Reformed faith, And one of the questions that comes up very often is, you know, it looks, from the look of it, like Derek had talked about, that the Jews were saved by works. But in the New Covenant, they're saved by grace. So the law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So it even sounds like Scripture saying that the Jews were saved by the law or by works. But... J.G. Voss, anticipating this misunderstanding, he asked the question in his book on the larger catechism, what error concerning this question is common today? It's very common today to hold that the Jews were saved by works, but Christians are saved by grace. Those who hold this view say that the covenant of works as a way of gaining eternal life did not end until Calvary. So we acknowledge that there are two basic covenants under which man lives. One is the covenant of works made with our first Adam in the garden, the terms of which are perfect personal perpetual obedience to all of God's commands. And then the second is the covenant of grace that's differently administered. We even have people that use the language of there are different dispensations, not dispensationalism. Doesn't make you familiar with that language, but there are different dispensations or administrations of this one covenant of grace. And the thing that unites them all together is grace. Old Testament saints 
were saved in exactly the same way that you and I are, by grace through faith in the Messiah to come. So they're the same in their substance, Old Covenant and New. Christ is the substance. Christ is the source of saving power. So the other person that I wanted to bring in, I've been reading Samuel Bolton's excellent book. It's published through the Banner of Truth, The True Bounds of Christian Freedom, where he's talking about uh, the place of the law in the believer's life. And he also helps to provide some clarity about this very, we might say, legal, heavy Mosaic covenant that most people think the Jews were saved by. Whereas we would say, no, it differs in form, but not in substance. So this is what Bolton writes. He says that this is the majority opinion of our holy and most learned divines, namely that though the law, that's the Mosaic law, is called a covenant, yet it was not a covenant of works for salvation, nor was it a third covenant of grace and works, but it was the same covenant in respect of its nature and design under which we stand under the gospel, even the covenant of grace, though more legally dispensed to the Jews. It differed not in substance from the covenant of grace, but in degree, some divines say, in the economy and external administration of it. So you can listen to Samuel Bolton, you can listen to Derek Bright, and they're hitting on that same thing, that it looks different, but it's not altogether different. Sean, what say you? I just appreciate you quoting Samuel Bolton, the older brother of the 80s pop rock ballad artist Michael Bolton. Thank you for recognizing that. Michael is the real bell of the ball, and Samuel's something of the redheaded stepchild like Derek. Yeah. So he doesn't get enough of a shout out. Michael gets all the attention. You know, he hit his peak in the late eighties. He was an, an icon in the American cultural scene. And so Samuel Bolton with all of his excellent covenant theology gets no attention. It's a shame. Forbid it that we should peak in the eighties. You know, it's 2023. Uh, be more like Samuel enduring quality. That's right. But, but Sean, you, you've ministered, in Virginia, you've ministered now in Tennessee, and certainly, I would say the majority opinion of those churches around you that are not Reformed is that, yeah, the, the Old Covenant and the New are substantially different. How do you explain to visitors to your church or people you meet out in the wild, like, no, 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 they're the same in substance, and, and here's why they're different? Because we know that they're different intuitively, but, but why are they different? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, let me let me take an attempt to answer that question from a couple different angles. I, I think you're right that, and and maybe they wouldn't put it so bluntly or so crassly, but the average Christian that you might run into in North America, and, and again, this is not to be denigratory or anything like that, but just the average Christian who's not Reformed, loves the Lord Jesus, is a believer, loves their Bible, believes all the essential core doctrines, is a sincere believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but maybe they haven't been uh, given uh, a great deal of theological training, certainly not instruction in Reformed doctrine and theology, uh, which, of course, we on this podcast would view as the correct um, interpretive lens by which to understand biblical Christianity. Um, Cards on the table. 
so they they're not familiar with it. And so when when pressed, and again, maybe they wouldn't put it so bluntly or crassly, but when pressed on this matter, essentially the answer, at least the one that I have gotten, is thank goodness that Jesus came. Thank goodness that we're not in that Old Testament era anymore, because now we're saved by grace. I couldn't have done it back then, because in that Old Testament era, they were saved by works. They had to obey all these facets of the law, all these instructions, down from from the broad Ten Commandments to the nitty-gritty things about tithing, you know, mint and cumin. And I couldn't do it. Old Testament, they had to be saved by works. They had to be saved by their keeping and doing and by works righteousness. Thank goodness for the Lord Jesus, because now we are saved by grace. Uh, that tends to be, when I, if I were to press them, you know, what's the difference between you know, Old and New Testament, or Old and New Covenant, rather? Uh, that would tend to be something along the lines of the answer I would get. Um, so helping folks to understand, and, th- and this is where we have, a, a, depending on who you ask, this is where we have a lot of commonality uh, with our Reformed Baptist, our Calvinistic Baptist brethren. Uh, we won't get into the weeds on that, but a fair degree of, of commonality. Uh, there are some there are some divergences at different points, but that we would say no 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 um, old covenant and new covenant post fall post Eden post Adam uh, God's people are saved by grace. Uh, the administration of what that covenant outwardly externally looked like and the the if you will ordinances or sacramental elements of it certainly differed between old and new. But it's not as if it's not as if Joshua had to be saved by works, but Peter was saved by grace. No, no, that's and it's not as if um, it's not as if Elijah had to be saved by works, but thankfully Spin and Sean and Matt and Derek are saved by grace. No, no, Old and New Testament saints saved by grace uh, through faith. Um, yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I was I was just gonna ask um, you, Sean, or or any in you know Spin or Derek can answer this too, but you know. When we have these conversations, right, with with non-reformed people, and they begin to push back on that answer, um, they, they'll go something like, "Well, you know, what what's going on with the Mosaic Covenant and the giving of the Ten Commandments? What's going on with, you know, the the six hundred plus laws that are listed within the Old Testament? You know, Spin brought up uh, J.G. Voss." And his scriptural reference for question 33 is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 9. And, you know, just let me, you know, read that for, for just a second here. Um, it says, uh, Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, which, you know, seemingly is a reference to the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory." And so they'll say, you know, well, well, Paul's saying that that there's works and death here in the giving of the law in the Old Testament. But now we have the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of his spirit being with us and and in us. And so isn't that showing us great discontinuity between the Old and New Testament? Isn't that showing us, you know, works and 
vengefulness and and wrath of God in the Old Testament, but grace and mercy and favor and uh, God being long suffering in the New. How do we how do we answer that? How do we say, okay, yes, He's given us law, but also this law is now included within uh, the covenant of grace as it's being revealed to us as covenant of grace Christians? I think that's an excellent question. I think that we would want to patiently and kindly uh, respond and, and hope to demonstrate to people by saying this is a principle that we see both in Old and New Testament, that grace precedes law. Grace precedes law. Why do I say that? Well, if, if, if you have your Bibles, turn with me <laughs> to Exodus 20. No, but it's seriously, Exodus 20, right at the preface of the giving of the Ten Commandments. What, what does God say? Exodus 20, starting at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We might supply the word, therefore, and then he begins giving the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and he goes from there. What does he say there in that preface? This is who I am. I'm the Lord your God. This is what I've done. I've brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Uh, is Israel about to become God's people? Are they about to be redeemed, or are they God's people and they have been redeemed? Well, I think the answer is the latter. They are God's people. He has redeemed them. Therefore, he gives them the law to abide by as an identifying marker uh, as his redeemed people. Well, this is a principle that we see all over the New Testament. You can see it, I think, well, you see it all over the place, but I think one of the more obvious ways is even the very structure of how the Apostle Paul loves to situate and frame his epistles. What does Paul always do? He always has two halves. Now, they're not always you know equal 50-50% in terms of chapter or word content, but Paul's epistles always have this twofold structure. First half, gospel. Second half, response to the gospel. Or as the Puritans would say, first half, ethics. Or excuse me, first half, doctrine. Second half, ethics. First, we might say first half, indicative. Second half, imperative. It's always how Paul does his letters. He Ephesians, first three chapters. This is the gospel. This is what God has done for you in Christ. Here's how he's redeemed you. Here's how he's ransomed you. Here's his glorious sovereignty and grace on display to rescue you from death and hell and make you his own. And then in chapters four, five, and six of Ephesians, what does he do? Therefore, this is how you should then live. Here are my commands. Here's how you should live as my blood-bought, redeemed people. Uh, you should How you should live in holiness, how you should bear with one another, how you should submit to your church leadership, how you should uh, practice your ethics in, in life against the in contrast to the wicked world, how you should bear long with one another when you get uh, on each other's nerves and irritate one another in the church. Wives and husbands, here's how you relate. Children and parents, here's how you relate. Slaves and masters, here's how you relate. And so on and so on and so on. Jesus Christ in John's gospel, if ye love me, keep my commandments. So there's always this principle. God acts in grace to ransom and redeem a people, and it transforms how they live. They always respond with lives of obedience and holiness because they have been redeemed, because they have been given new life, and they and God graciously gives these commands uh, to determine the ethics and 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 pattern of our lives as we live for Him until either we die and go to glory, or He returns, whichever comes first. You know that that pattern that you're mentioning here in Exodus 20, all throughout the New Testament letters, is actually the same pattern. Maybe not as explicit, but it's the same pattern that we see with Noah as well. I mean, if you think about the story of Noah, you you know you you see that Noah finds favor with the Lord. 
He saves for himself a, a remnant, no one his family, before he pours out his judgment. The waters subside in chapter 8. And then as God tells Noah to exit the ark, you see God in his graciousness saving Noah, Noah responding to that grace with the offering of a burnt offering on, upon the altar. And in chapter 9, the first couple of words there, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, and then reestablishes the creation mandates that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, right? So again, it's not the, you know, the covenant of works is God creating Adam, giving him dominion in this covenant of works nature, uh, you know, your your obedience will lead to the, the positive implication to your obedience is eternal life. Now in the covenant of grace, it is grace and favor, blessings from the Lord, preservation from the flood. Noah, now that you love me, keep my commandments, as, mm -hmm. as Sean just mentioned as well. And so as we as we think about that, uh, it might be time to move to question 34. But before we do that, does anybody else have something to add? Yeah. I okay. Go ahead, Derek. Preservation. Huh? If you're a preservation from the flood, what is Oh, man. Sorry. Yeah. That's just the Dylan <laughs> accent. Okay. I am a, I, we're firm believers in the preservation of the saints around here. We love that saintly perseverance. Hey. So, just side note, funny story. We all like to talk about how I coach sports and things, but. I was coaching the JV football team at, at Dillon Christian School, uh, the school under the umbrella of our ministry here at First Presbyterian Church. And I was flagged while we were on defense uh, for illegal precipitation. And and I was, you know, I was looking up at a sunny sky. Where's the precipitation? Where's the rain? But the guy meant, you know, participation. <laughs> Because I sent a defense, a, de a defender out on the field right, right when the ball was being snapped. But anyway, that's just how we talk down here in the PD country of South Carolina. So, Derek, you knew what I was saying. It's the same language that's used in Owensville, Alabama. Okay. <laughs> Derek seems skeptical about that <laughs> linguistic assertion. <laughs> okay. He's... Well, as we. What is you the know, etymology we... of. <laughs> what is this country uh, of origin? Uh, yeah. Can you use that in a sentence? Uh, as we move away from uh, from picking on my uh, accent, I guess you would say, and my terrible grammar, uh, <laughs> because I was born and raised here in the, the metropolitan of Dillon, South Carolina, deep south. Uh, Sean, uh, do you want to read for us question 34? Certainly. Question 34. So in being a natural launch pad out of question 33, talking about the covenant of grace, number 34 says, how was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? Answer, the covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances, which did all for signify Christ then to come, and were for that time, sufficient to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they then had full remission of sin and eternal salvation. 
So, the larger catechism is pretty clear, I would say unambiguously clear, in terms of its view on these matters. And if folks uh, don't particularly agree with the way that we are expressing it, that's fine, but I think they would find themselves at odds with the larger catechism's doctrine on these things. You know, kind of the Sunday school answer, at least the one that uh, I was taught— well, maybe not. I was taught because I didn't grow up in the Presbyterian Church, but the Sunday school answer that we often will tell our our Sunday school kiddos these days it is good theology. How were the Old Testament saints saved by looking forward to Christ and His promises and trusting in them? How are the New Testament? How are we saved? Well, by looking back on Christ crucified and risen again and believing in His promises. Um, maybe it's a little oversimplified for for erudite theological nuance, but it's basically right, and I think that that. I think that's being expressed here in this catechism answer of number 34. All these things, right, sacrifices, circumcision, Passover, these Old Testament types and ordinances all foresignified Christ then to come and were for that time sufficient to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah. And then again, namely, I got to reread that clause at the end, that promised Messiah by whom they then had full remission of sin and eternal salvation. So even without the Old Testament saints knowing the the fullness of how this was going to shake out. They they were nevertheless, the Catechism is asserting here, saved by faith in the coming Messiah. They had forgiveness of sins in that coming Messiah, whom we now know was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And again, you get little, I think the Catechism helps us understand that, you get little glimpses of how this salvation was going to play out as Scripture unfolds. We do believe in progressive revelation. Um, it's the saints in Abraham's time did not have the the privilege or the luxury of the same full blown understanding as say the apostle Peter or the apostle Paul, but they did have some idea of how this was going to play out. Uh, you get to Genesis three. We're told that there's a coming seed. Genesis three sixteen. There's a coming seed who will crush the head of the serpent, and he will strike the serpent will strike his heel, and by this coming seed. Redemption will happen for God's elect. And then you get on further into Scripture, and uh, I, I won't go through all the, the, the proof text just now, but you know, you get to places like the Psalms, and you realize, okay, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, so great David's greater son, is David is calling him Lord, there's something going on here. And then you get to Isaiah 53 and some of the servant songs, and you realize, oh wait, this, this servant who's going to come save the people is also going to suffer and bleed and be tortured, and huh, and, but then, and then back in Psalm 16, his soul is not going to be given over to Sheol. He's not going to see corruption. So that must mean there's something happening here. There he defies death. And it all finally comes together in, in glorious fulfillment uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the promised Messiah. Even if they didn't in their time and place fully understand all that that would look like, it was given to them in snippets, in, in bits and pieces as that progressive revelation was unfolding and they would discover more and more. And eventually would eventually the prophets were told, okay, there's this ruler, he's going to come from Bethlehem and, and uh, all right, now we're starting to put the pieces together. So there's something of the angle that uh, question number uh, 34 is getting at here. Yeah, Sean, you, you're bringing up where all of the commentaries on the larger catechism are going, you know, we haven't walked through the the Old Testament administrations of the covenant of grace, but you have the Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, uh, Mosaic, and then the Davidic, right? And and so you have these 
these covenant administrations revealing to us the fullness of the covenant of grace, as we've already said. And O. Palmer Robertson, I have a quote from him that talks about how Christ is central to all of these uh, all of these administrations throughout the Old Testament as it points us to the new. Um, this comes from his book, The Christ of the Covenants. Maybe uh, we can give a copy of that away uh, next episode because it's so good. But O. Palmer Robertson, father in the faith here in the PCA, he writes this. He says, because the various strands of hope for redemption converge on this single person, he becomes the unifying focus of all of Scripture. Both kingdom and covenant unite under Emmanuel in the person of Jesus Christ. The covenants of God achieve incarnational unity because Jesus, as the Son of God and mediator of the covenant, cannot be divided. The covenants cannot be divided. He himself guarantees the unity of the covenants because he himself is the heart of each of the various covenantal administrations. That is perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, as we as we jump in here to uh, question thirty four, it's interesting too, and it's it's worth just a, a teeny little side note that uh, you'll notice that the the language of the catechism is administration, and we've tended to favor that language of administration. That tends to be the language that most modern day Reformed theologians favor. Um, some of the older literature, and I think you even see it here, and if if a person has Voss's commentary, will refer to the administrations as dispensations, but we tend to shy away from that today just to avoid confusion uh, because of the late great arrival, see what I did there, of dispensational theology. Um, with the rise of dispensationalism and dispensational theology in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, when people hear dispensation, I think they just invariably, certainly in a North American context, I suspect in a Western European context as well, uh, they tend to associate that word dispensation with dispensationalism, uh, which is which is a rather different system of theology uh, than Reformed theology. So we tend to favor the language of adm- covenant administration just to avoid uh, that confusion and maintain those distinctions. But listeners should be aware that in some of the older literature that you might read uh, from Reformed and Covenant theologians in the uh, 16th, 17th, and even 18th centuries, they might use those word dispensations, and you should not be alarmed by that. Yeah. Spin, Derek, as as we think about question 34 here, and we think about typology and prophecies, as the Catechism says, is a they all four signify Christ then to come. I mean, do y'all want to give us just some some examples of that scripturally? You know, explain typology. You know, reference some of these Old Testament um, prophecies that point to Christ. Derek, I mean, would you take a stab at, at defining typology for for our listeners? You can do it, buddy. I believe in you. <laughs> yeah. So. When we speak about typology, we're really um, speaking about something that is a type of or a pointer to a foreshadowing even of something greater. So uh, this could uh, an example, I think that I think examples actually really do a better job than just giving a definition. But um, if you want to say that. Uh, 
David is a type of Christ. What does that mean? Um, it means that David has characteristics or situations or uh, something that is not only relevant for the immediate context, but is actually pointing forward to a greater for greater fulfillment. So um, David is a, you know, you could say he's a righteous king who um, has slayed the Philistines and um, slayed, um, you know, the giant or whatever the case is. Um, well, how is that a type of Christ? Well, there's a greater king, uh, as Sean said earlier, great David's greater son, who is a truly righteous king without sin, um, who rules and governs over his people, the fulfillment of the covenant made with David in Second Samuel 7. And he is the one who, who even uh, slays our own Philistines, if you will. Okay, and this is a little bit redemptive historical here. Um, but how does, how does David's killing of the giant... Um, how does that uh, point to Christ? Well, Christ is the one who truly slays God's enemies, truly slays our sin, if you will, to free us. Um, so, I mean, you could you could do it um, a number of ways. I mean, you could even do the Exodus, for example, and speak about how the Exodus event is one that is a uh, typology in its own right, pointing to our freedom from slavery and bondage and sin going, passing through the waters of judgment, pointing to, of course, the greater redemption that the Lord Jesus Christ offers us in his uh, Exodus event. So, um, so yeah, so there, there's a number of ways you could do that. Um, you know, I, I, I know that um, typology can be abused, but I think it's a very helpful tool. So somebody may want to add some nuance to that or, or add some of that to the, add some definition more to that. But um, that's, that's what I, where at least I would begin. No, that, that's, that's good, Derek. The only thing I would add, and it's not because of anything you didn't say, it's just that. Okay, man, be... I didn't really want you to say anything. All right. <laughs> no, it's just that the, the, the fall, the, the, one of the, the pitfalls of the English language is, and maybe even some listeners here are aware of this, that when we say type of Christ, a person who's not familiar with theological language might just be confused by that. A type of Christ? I thought Jesus was the only Savior. Are you saying there's other types, other other kinds of Saviors? No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what that means at all. Type and typology is, is a more specific and narrow version when used in these theological contexts, and it has to do with the definition that Derek just laid out. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. And I think you really get a good example of this in the book of Hebrews. Um you know, it's been said by numerous people that if you were to give a one word sim summary of the book of Hebrews, it's Jesus is greater than. Mm -hmm. And and what does the author to the Hebrews do? What does what does Luke do in his sermon that was recorded by Paul is um, he, he takes all of the uh, he takes circumcision. He takes the Passover. He takes the um, the angels. He takes Moses and all that. And, and basically says, all these were great, but Jesus is actually greater. They, they, these all pointed really to, um, to a greater fulfillment in Christ. Like, yeah, yeah, what Moses did was awesome, but Jesus is the true fulfillment of that. And Moses really serves as a pointer to Christ. He really serves as um, a foreshadowing 
of the one to come. So topology really, I think personally is best connected with the promises that we find in scripture, the fulfillment of the promises. Oh, that's, that's good, Derek. And I know know. (laughs) typology is a great thing. I mean, Um, when you, when you know, you know, and, and, and types and shadows. So one of the reasons why the old Testament looks different than the new Testament is because there was tremendous instructive value in the types, the ceremonies, the symbols, which all signified, foresignified, foreshadowed, typified the Christ to come. And when you think about the way that Paul talks about the old covenant people in the book of Galatians, he says that Israel, one of the reasons why they had a multiplicity of these sacraments, of these physical signs pointing to a deeper spiritual reality, namely Christ, is because Israel was like a child. For the same reason that you and I teach our children math using toy cars, beads, and tactile things, because their minds can only handle so much information. And so we use pictures, we use material objects to teach them things that once they reach a certain age and level of maturity, we don't teach our 16-year-olds using abacuses anymore or using objects because they've reached an age of understanding. And so in the New Testament, we don't use, I'll call it, Old Testament picture books because now the New Testament church doesn't need pictures or as many pictures as they did in the Old Testament because Christ, the substance, has come. Now, as I say that, there are two pictures in the New Testament that Jesus gives us that signify in the same way, and here's the crazy thing, in the same way that all of those Old Testament sacrifices, ceremonies, the temple, all of them pointed to Jesus, so our New Testament sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, point us to the person and the work of Christ. And we're not saved by those. So to Sean, when you were talking earlier about asking or interacting with that person who thinks that the Jews under the Old Testament were saved by their adherence to the Mosaic system or to Old Testament sacraments. I like to turn around and ask those people, are you saved by receiving water baptism? Mm-hmm. Are you saved by taking the Lord's Supper? And, and, and they're quick to say, no, no, these are signs of the gospel. There are, certain, say, there are certain podcast hosts who are nodding their head in agreement to that hypothetical suggestion. I'll let the listeners Derek, decide for themselves who they think that might be. Derek is a disease. Uh, <laughs> I just watched Home Alone. Uh, great movie. Very very heartwarming. Not a dysfunctional family at all, the McAllister. <laughs> That's but, so because, and here's the deal, I want to tie together sort of the whole of the Westminster Standards here. Chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession talks about why the Old Covenant and New Covenant look different, though they remain the same in substance with reference to Jesus. And because we believe in a continuity of substance between the Old Covenant and the New, we also believe that there's a continuity of efficacy of the sacraments, Old Testament to New. So in the Confession, chapter 27, section 5, I love to take our Baptist friends here, because this is usually where we part ways. They'll agree with typology, and I'll talk about this in a second. They'll agree 
that the Old Testament Paschal Lamb, the Day of Passover, uh, the Day of Atonement, all of these four signified Christ, but they tend to deny that those were the means whereby Old Testament saints communed with Christ. But when you go to Westminster Confession 27.5, it says, the sacraments of the Old Testament, in regard of the spiritual things signified thereby and exhibited, were for substance the same with those of the new. So that's why we say in the larger catechism, these sacraments were efficacious as means of grace to Old Testament saints, just like the New Testament sacraments are means of grace to your faith and mine. We're more alike than we are different. How God communicates is different, but what he's communicating and the grace he offers us is exactly the same, because otherwise we have to ask the question, what were they doing? And if these four signified Christ, which we, we tend to agree that they do, they weren't participating at all in the grace of Christ to come? So I, I think the burden of proof would be on those who see the typological and four-signifying significance of the Old Testament ceremonies. The burden of proof is on them to demonstrate that, oh yeah, they, they were four-signifying grace, but they were receiving no grace mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ I just can't see that, whether, you know, looking in our confession or or in the Bible itself, because the way the New Testament talks about Old Testament saints, the way it talks about Abraham and the patriarchs and the prophets, they're looking to the Messiah, just like us, more alike than we are different. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, it, and again, not necessarily a disagreement, but a, 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 an interesting difference of language or difference of, of emphasis modern Reformed literature tends to just restrict the use of the language of sacraments to New Testament, to baptism and the Lord's Supper. A lot of the older Reformed theologians were were not—they didn't have any discomfort about applying the word sacraments to the things of the Old Testament. Um, I think I was reading William Swan Plummer in his, his massive commentary on the Psalms a few weeks ago, and he was invoking that language of sacramental in reference to circumcision and the Passover, the sacrament of Passover uh, for God's Old Testament people. So again, uh, it, it's interesting. They were So they were more comfortable using that language of sacrament for the Old Testament things than we tend to be today. And in doing so, I think that they helped to highlight that overall cohesion and unity between the two eras of Old and New Covenant. Yeah, I, I just want to jump in here real quick and say that you know, we for our listeners, I believe we've talked about this a little bit before, um, because Gerhardus Voss talks about the trees in the garden as sacramental trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and why does he do that? Because they are a symbol, there's something physical, a word picture, even if you will, um, that points to a greater reality. And so, um, they are things that are set aside. And I would argue normal trees, they didn't look different, but they were just normal trees that were set aside and consecrated by God pointing to a greater reality. So, yes, just to piggyback off what Sean said um, or shown, as some would say, uh, that, um, you know, if you read uh, some older theological literature, don't be surprised when they use uh, uh, the word sacrament or sacramental to speak about things and it causes you to go, wait a minute, 
what do they mean by this? Um, you know, don't be alarmed by that, but, but actually just follow out the line of thought. And I think you'll, you'll find it really helpful. And Derek, I want to illustrate for, for our friends listening, sacramental efficacy, because we, and, and I'm really glad Sean explained that to folks. Cause you know, here we kind of speak in this terminology all the time with the reading that we do. And so we understand, you know, sacraments can be spoken of as, as physical signs pointing to inward spiritual realities that that can be applied to old Testament and new. And I want I really want to f- double down on the fact of sacramental efficacy in the old Testament. And I want to illustrate it this way. I live in Jacksonville, Florida, tons of people moving to Florida, lots of building going on. And my in-laws, they're living their Florida best life and they have a golf cart. And I took my son on the golf cart to go get breakfast uh, in their neighborhood. And there was a building being built and it was under construction. And the only way that the construction crews were getting up and down this three-story building was by way of scaffolding. Once the building was completed, the way that you go up and down that building is via the staircase or the elevator. The scaffolding comes down. That's something like the efficacy of the Old Testament sacraments and their relationship to the efficacy of the New Testament sacraments. It is better to go up and down a building via the internal staircase or elevator. Once the building is built, you don't get up and down via the scaffolding anymore. But nor, and this is where I think a lot of our Reformed Baptist friends would, what they do, nor do you deny the efficacy of the scaffolding and the fact that for the time that it was you know, in play, that it was operating, it was genuinely a means whereby you go up and down that building. So yes, the Old Testament is filled with types and shadows, but it's not just shadowy as though they had no communion with Christ, because Derek mentioned 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4, where that rock was Christ. So there is real grace, there is real sacramental efficacy that they were experiencing in the Old Testament. But the sacramental efficacy and the clarity, which we're going to talk about in question 35 in the next episode as we wrap up, ours is better. It's clearer, and but that doesn't deny the efficacy of that which came before. We're covenantal. We believe in building up on that which came before. We don't believe tearing down, denigrating, or denying that God's grace reached people in that different old covenant way than it reaches us in, in the new covenant. Guys, I know that we are you know approaching an hour here for this episode, and, and we need to wrap up for the sake of our listeners' time. But one, just as a side note, rewind your minds about 15 minutes are we going to really allow Derek to give a position on the authorship of Hebrews uh, without any comment? Uh, you know, he argued sermon from Luke recorded by Paul. Just going to put that out there. If anybody disagrees, we can have a totally different episode about uh, who the the author of Paul, uh, author of Hebrews was. But I just wanted to be known that 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 Derek threw that in there. And nobody commented on it. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I I think that there is no there's no rejoinder, and so since Spin already dropped in one Home Alone two quote, I'll drop in another. This is the point where since no one can beat or best Derek, he looks at all of us and says, "Beat that, you little trout sniffer." I, you know. I'm not saying I disagree with him. I'm just saying that we didn't comment on it. Um, and, and he threw it in there very subtly, very slickly. And it was, it was good. Derek, I, I appreciate you, uh, you, you just, you know, putting that right in your little comment and, and us just moving along so that we might give everyone, all of our listeners, uh, the correct answer when they're asked who wrote Hebrews. Anyway, uh, second uh, second point I wanted to make, uh, even though we're short on time, is that we're we're tapping uh, all over question thirty five, and I know that we're gonna, you know, give a fuller commentary on this in in our next episode. But I just wanted for our listeners to to read it so that our listeners would would know exactly where we're going with this because we've talked about. You know, we're ta- we've talked about New Testament sacraments, which which question thirty five mentions. We've talked about efficacy. We've we've talked about building upon what has come before, right? In the scaffolding illustration that's been helpfully gave us. And so, question thirty five asks, "How is the covenant of grace administered under the New Testament? Under the New Testament, when Christ the substance was exhibited." The same covenant of grace was and still is to be administered in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy to all nations. And so I think what's really helpful here is to understand that the same comment in which uh, is made in question 34 or better yet the answer that these things were given to build up the elect in faith the same thing is true as we move into the new testament that the sacraments and the preaching of the word are given so that we might build up the elect in the faith you know i I think about what what paul writes in colossians chapter one that his whole ministry was driven by this desire to present believers mature in Christ. And so as the Old Testament believers looked at the Messiah to come or look forward to the Messiah to come, we look back to the incarnation, but also forward to the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And these same administrations of grace with the sacraments as you know, sensible reminders uh, are are given to the elect so that we might be built up in our faith and our knowledge of uh, the Lord as he has saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ by his grace and this covenant of grace that which he cut with his people. Derek's shaking his head yes, and yet he is not saying anything. So I'm going to take his uh, silence as an affirmation that I just got that right. And I'm going to put that on my resume. That that Derek did not correct me for once. That that'll be at your that the near the top of the resume. You know, it'll say B A from here, M D from here, D Min from here, and Derek Bright once agreed with me, uh, in early January of 2024. Right there at the top of the CV. I was actually gonna put it even before my name on my Damn. resume. Yes. So that we just set the groundwork. 
you know. Derek Bright once affirmed me and agreed with me. And Thank my you. name is Matthew. And my, name is, and my name is. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, folks, I think we've just about hit the, the one hour mark. So I think this is a great place for us to hit pause. And we're going to continue with part two of our discussion. And hopefully you all will be able to join us again next week. So we're, we're considering uh, larger catechism questions 33, 34, and 35 sort of as a package deal. But there's so much going on in those questions. There's so much doctrine and theology that's worth ruminating on. Uh, we don't want to have a, uh, one episode be four hours long, so we're going to try and break it up. So we've talked a little bit about 33 and 34 today. We've even tapped as, and, and, and danced around question 35 a bit, as Matt already alluded to. So we'll get more into 34 and 35 properly in next week's episode. So for all of us here at Larger for Life, we're glad to have you joining us for this episode. Hope that you found it encouraging and edifying, and we look forward to having you all join us again next time. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash larger for life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. <laughs>